Good morning. All right, I'm going to let that stand, but not for long. We're in, thank you. We're in lesson 12 in our study in the book of Hebrews, and we're dealing with chapter 5, verses 11 through chapter 6, verse 3. If you look at your notes, I, I, I had titled that Dealing with Dullness, and, and there were a lot of other titles that could come to my mind, like Dumb and Dumber and, and, and whatever, or, or Maturity for Dummies, uh, something along that line. Actually, that word dull of hearing uh, is a word that, that uh, sometimes was translated stupid. Uh, Plato used it for his students, and so you just have to uh, take it in. But I, I'm going to go back to my original uh, title, Melchizedek and Maturity. That's, that sounds so much better, I think. Uh, but it doesn't change the condition of, uh, of the people to whom this epistle is written. When, when I look at the book of Hebrews, it, it seems to me that there are two uh, areas of truth that converge uh, in our text and, and then uh, move on, and I'd like to just call your attention to those. The first area is what you might call the sufficiency of Christ. And, and you have all of these texts that are laid out for us uh, beginning from chapter 1 that talk about who Jesus Christ is. Remember, uh, it says that he is the one through whom the Father has made full and final revelation in contrast to the partial and the preparatory revelation of the Old Testament uh, and, and through the prophets. Uh, he is the one who is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He is the one who, to whom the angels bow in worship so that he is the one who is greater than the angels. He is the one who is greater than Moses in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. He is the one who is greater than Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. So there's a tremendous emphasis on the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ and his supremacy. And, and then there is the uh, emphasis on the deficiency, if you would, of man. It's hinted at in chapter 2 where it talks about the original dignity of man. He was created to rule, to have power and dignity. But it says we don't see man functioning in that role. What we see is our Lord Jesus Christ who has fulfilled that through his incarnation and his victory on the cross of Calvary. So there is that, that hint. And then later in chapter 2, it talks about man being enslaved by the fear of death all the days of his life. But it really becomes full-blown in chapter 3 and verse 7 when you have that reference now, that extended reference back to the first generation of Israelites and their failure in the wilderness under the leadership of Moses. And in particular, those uh, citation from Psalm 95, verse 7, the, uh, through verse 11, where it picks up on that. And it's very clear, I think, that the warnings that are given with regard to that first generation are applied to the generation of the psalmist's day, and they are applied to the readers of uh, the, the, the uh, recipients of the book of Hebrews, and they surely apply to us. All of that is to say, man is desperately in need of help. <laughs> I remember my friend Fred used to talk about a man who was preaching in a certain church and, and he was floundering and some lady yells out from the back, Help him, Lord! 
<laughs> That's us. We all need it. Uh, we need his help because we are weak and we are deficient. Now, if you look at that little chart, and I'm, I'm just going to demonstrate the weakness of man because I am not an artist. I'm not about clothes and I'm not about art. And if somebody can tell me how to connect all my lines and make it neat, I'm willing to learn. But this is as good as I could do. You see that, those two lines of, of thought converging, the sufficiency of Christ, the deficiency of man, and the point of convergence is the incarnation. That is the point at which our Lord Jesus Christ brings his adequacy down to humanity and offers it to us, and out of this flows the teaching of the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. His high priestly ministry, which provides the sufficient atonement for men's sins for eternal life, and the high priestly ministry, which provides for our inadequacies in daily living whenever we come to him for help in our time of need. So that's the theme that is being played out. And you know that that is going to extend to the high priestly ministry of our Lord that comes from the order of Melchizedek. And he is just moving into that area of comparison with Melchizedek and contrast with Aaron when he realizes that this is, that the readers are out of their depth. That this is an area that his readers are going to be struggling to grasp what he's saying because of their immaturity. And that brings us to these verses that we are dealing with uh, as we come to our text. So if you look at the, uh, the parenthetical pause that I've got there in, in your notes, in chapter 5, verse 11 through 6-3, you see this, uh, our message today on a cure for sluggish saints. When you look at chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, those are the problem verses, and I put them off as long as I can, but next week it's coming. I've got to deal with, with those difficult words in verses 4 through 8. And that is those who are beyond repentance. And then in, in uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 12, you have those, uh, uh, again, the readers that he is uh, primarily addressing, I think, in our text. And he says he is convinced of better things with regard to them and their salvation. And then closes off with his uh, standing on the promises message. Now he's going to go in chapter 7 and pick up again on Melchizedek and the way in which the ministry of our Lord parallels the ministry, the priestly ministry of Melchizedek. Now, if you look at, at, at our text and the structure of our text, it's pretty easy to see. It falls into two uh, major parts. In verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, it is the author's assessment of the spiritual condition of his readers, at least most of them. And so he talks about this problem of their dullness. And in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, you have the author's approach based on that assessment. Here is how he is going to deal with his readers uh, based upon their spiritual dullness. Now, I don't think I need to, uh, to underscore the importance of our text, but just uh, in case I do... I would say this, it is very important because it assesses our spirituality as well as the spirituality of those readers in that day. It tells us what maturity 
Or I should say, it tells us what immaturity looks like, and it looks mighty familiar to me. So it's going to assess our spiritual condition. But even more than that, it is the introduction and the prelude to that tough text that's coming next week. And if we don't understand the passage as it leads up to that difficult text, we're certainly going to struggle as we get to those verses uh, next week. So my approach is going to be to, to come to our text in this way, to ask some questions that pertain to our text and seek to answer them, and then see if we can find out what the argument is. What's the author saying to his readers? What do they need to do? And then to look at that and seek to apply it to us. There is a cultural gap here, because I understand this to be written to those who are Jewish saints. And so there is going to be a certain amount of gap between them and us, but it seems to me in principle the lessons will be the same, and, and we can talk about that uh, a little bit later. So let's talk about the, the crucial questions. And the first one is, to whom is the author speaking? Now, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really, I guess, I think we, we all know that these are... Hebrew believers or people who are steeped in, in, in the Hebrew and the Old Testament tradition who have at least uh, come out of that background. But I'm raising the question because of our friend uh, John MacArthur who I think took the road less traveled and in fact I think he took uh, the road that maybe shouldn't have been traveled in that he concludes that these people in our text are unbelievers. Now that, that to me on the face of it I just read the text and I say I don't quite understand how you get there, but I thought, okay, I'll deal with it momentarily. I'm not going to dwell on it. But he would say these are unbelievers, probably to be consistent with what happens in verses 4 through 8 in his mind, and then he would take those in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 6 to be believers. I perceive this to be a text that is addressed to believers, and it is very difficult, I guess, for me to see it any other way. They're Jewish believers, but if you look at, at these three tests that he places on them, these are not tests that you would place as to whether or not one is saved. You would, you would look at this in terms of tests as to whether or not one was mature. There's, there's a world of difference between being an immature Christian and being an unbeliever. So the first test is the test of hearing. And he says of them that they are dull, they are sluggish in their hearing. Now, that fits with what he said already in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. He said, if, in fact, as chapter 1 indicates in those first four verses, that God has revealed himself finally and fully in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus, then we ought to listen more carefully to what he has said. Uh, and, and so there must be a problem with listening. There must be an attention span problem, some kind of sluggish hearing problem that is uh, bogging down these believers with respect to the Word of God. The second test is the test of time. He says, by now, these should have been teachers. By the way, I, I should have said parenthetically, this text is one that tells us more about the recipients of these uh, Hebrew people than anything we've seen up to this point. This gives us more insight into the readers, the first readers of this epistle, 
And, uh, and so they, uh, we can tell that there has to have been a period of time, a significant period of time that has passed. He is not talking to people who are brand new baby believers who are still, so to speak, wet behind the ears, right? We're talking about people who for a period of time, we would say a significant period of time, these people have been believers in Jesus Christ and yet... They're not the ones who are doing teaching. They are still the ones being taught. And worse than that, they're not being taught advanced things. They're being taught those very elemental things that were first would first be taught to uh, a baby Christian. So this is not a good sign in terms of their maturity. And then there is the test of their diet. What are they eating? Well, they're, they're not eating at all. They're just drinking milk, the text says, rather than meat. Now, I'm going to come to those other passages that uh, we see comparatively in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter chapter 2. But you have to say, it is not a healthy sign. Drinking milk for this crowd is not a healthy sign. It is one more sign of immaturity. But all of that is to say, these are things that are spoken of believers, not things that would be spoken about unbelievers so far as I, my understanding is. By the way, when you look at verses 9 through 12, he's going to pick up that same word sluggish in, in uh, verse 12, and he's going to say, I'm assured of better things concerning you And these are the things that you can do so that you won't be sluggish. Again, that seems to tie the text that is clearly addressed to believers to a text which, in my mind, is also clearly addressed to believers, the text that we're looking at in verses 11 uh, through uh, chapter 6, verse 3. So, what is the malady of these believers? They are Christians. What is their problem? Well, the first problem is they need milk. And, and that's portrayed in a way that is not looked upon as a sign of health. Uh, when you look at this in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, drinking milk is looked at as a good thing. He says that you ought to desire the sincere, that is the pure, the unadulterated milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, assuming, he says, that you indeed have come to faith. So for a new believer to desire the Word of God, as, as it were, the milk of the Word of God, is a wonderful thing because that's where you start. Uh, but that's not where these people are, and so uh, Peter's uh, words are not directly uh, uh, and clearly the same scenario, uh, dealing with the same scenario as we have here. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you remember that he talks about the, the way in which he's dealing with spiritual matter and spiritual matters must be understood not by the natural man but by the Spirit of God who will make those truths clear to men. And then he says in chapter 3, Unfortunately, when I speak to you, I have to speak to you as babes because you're still dealing with the milk. So he's coming closer to the problem that I think that we're dealing with in our, our uh, chapter and text in the epistle to the Hebrews. So what does it mean to our, uh, to, uh, to our author uh, to be those who drink milk? 
it seems to me it's clear it's an evidence of immaturity. That's what he says. Drinking milk is an evidence of immaturity. Adults don't, well, they don't live on milk. They drink milk, but it isn't the essence of their diet. They like meat and other things they can sink their teeth into. These people just can't get past the Old Testament. And, and again, you have to understand the Jewish context of this. They, they, they have nestled down in the Old Testament and the Old Testament text. And it seems to me that what you have to say is this milk has an Old Testament flavor. Now, I'm going to try to document that uh, as we move along. But it seems to me the context would tell us that they have this fixation on... Uh, the, the Old Testament and rather, rather than the New. And then notice it says that they are ignorant of the message of righteousness. Verse 13. Now, there are various ways of understanding this. I will say that while I have a tendency sometimes to be with John MacArthur on that road less traveled or, or out there on the end of the proverbial limb, it's generally held, I would say by, by most evangelical scholars, that the things that are being described here are those things that are Old Testament truths that point to the Messiah, or, as we come to in, in chapter 6, those sort of uh, catechismal, uh, catechismal truths that would be introduced to new Christians who have just entered the faith out of Judaism. So there is, there is, there is by common agreement, a strong Old Testament flavor to this. When they are ignorant, then, of the message of righteousness, I would say... They are those who minor, a major in the Old Testament, and they have not really sunk their teeth into the new. And so the message of righteousness, as I understand it, is that message that pertains to Christ and the New Testament truths into which they should be moving and growing as, as Christians. They have a desire or a need for the beginning elements of God's utterances. Now, this is what points me back to the Old Testament. It's the ABCs, that's really the word for it, but it says the utterances of God. Now, granted, there are instances in the New Testament where the oracles of God will be spoken of in, in not necessarily Old Testament terms. But if one comes out of Judaism and they are, they are steeped in Old Testament language, when you think of the oracles of God, you think of the Old Testament. And you think of those things that God has spoken. So it seems to me that when he speaks about that need for the elements, those beginning elements of the oracles of God, he's talking about those, 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 those fundamental things. Now, here's the way I understand that. When you look at Luke chapter 24, and you see our Lord Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and you see the, the disciples, these two disciples, and you know they're thinking all is lost and whatever, and Jesus goes back and he begins with the law, and he takes them all the way through the Old Testament, and he's basically focusing on those things which point to Christ. It seems to me that that's the basic content or curriculum he's talking about. It's important and it's true. It's not something false, but it is something that you have to move beyond in the sense that you move from a premise further down the line and you don't stay there dwelling upon, as it were, kindergarten material. Nothing wrong with going to kindergarten, but eventually you're supposed to, you're supposed to go on and move on to higher grades. That's really what it's all about. 
So there is this need for the ABCs about Christ, chapter 6 and verse 1, those elemental things that I take to be Old Testament truths that point forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus that they desperately need to know. So what must be left behind uh, when, when the writer says, leaving behind the elementary teaching about the Christ? What is it that must be left behind? And this is where I think you have to say, you, you don't say leaving behind the gospel, do you? Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says that the false teachers, they come along and, and in effect their message is this. Yes, yes, it's true. Jesus died on the cross of Calvary and whatever. But now we have to move on to these deeper truths and they are not the truths of the gospel. They're, they're leading you away. So it seems to me that it's not possible to say that we have to move beyond the gospel. Now, you may move beyond it in the sense of you grow up and you understand it more in depth, but you don't leave it behind uh, as, as it would seem that the author is calling us to do. Now, what are those elements of this thing that is to be left behind? He says in, in verses uh, 1 and 2, repentance from dead works and faith in God. By the way, most scholars seem to recognize that these are paired. So you have repentance from dead works combined with faith in God. That makes sense, doesn't it? When you come to faith, you acknowledge, it isn't my works that are going to save me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It isn't by works of my righteousness. It's by faith in the work, the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. So you leave behind works righteousness and you trust in God. Baptisms, it depends on your translation. Some will say washings. It's not the technical word for baptism, and it's plural. So uh, there again, it seems what we're talking about is those Old Testament rituals which look forward to New Testament realities. And, and so washings and the laying on of hands, you remember that, for instance, the laying on of hands would come with, with the sacrificial animal that was sent out into the wilderness, the Day of Atonement, and so on. There are many instances in the Old Testament which, which could be seen in the light of uh, laying on of hands and washings. And then it says resurrection and eternal judgment. Once again, when you look in the Old Testament, you will see evidences in Daniel chapter 12, uh, in Job, other indications that there will be a resurrection from the dead and there will be a judgment that follows, eternal judgment that will follow. So these are Old Testament uh, truths that are seen in shadow but are seen fully, the substance of which are seen in the New Testament. And, and it, it appears to me that what's happening is these Old Testament saints uh, or, or these Jewish saints who have come to faith are, are clinging to their Old Testament as though it were the better revelation rather than the new. That's why you have this, this thing about uh, uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, and 2, 1 through 4. And, and it's not saying that the Old Testament isn't inspired or authoritative because the author quotes to prove his point. What he's saying is the New Testament is clearer and fuller. So you understand the Old Testament in the light of the New. You don't project the Old Testament and their misunderstandings, as I see it, uh, onto the New Testament. And you see that, of course, throughout Judaism in Jesus' day. Now, 
Here's, here's some examples of that. I, I, I just uh, threw out a few of leaving behind and moving ahead, not in the sense of rejection, but in the sense of promotion. Mathematics. I taught for, for a, a short time. I taught mathematics. I was not very good at it. I never really liked it, but I taught it anyway. And, and uh, you move from, from basic mathematics to algebra and geometry and then to calculus. You don't stay with your multiplication tables. You move on. It doesn't mean you reject those multiplication tables because they become foundational. Algebra is foundational to what you're going to do later on in higher math. But you have to have gotten those things down, and then you move beyond and don't stay exactly where you were. I was thinking of Apollos in, in, the, in the book of Acts, chapter 18. You remember? Apollos was one who was mighty in the Scriptures. We would have to say mighty in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was mighty in the Scriptures, and he was doing powerful things, but it was Priscilla and Aquila who, t- who came along and, if you would, took him from milk to meat. And, and there was that aha moment where now Apollos realizes from a New Testament perspective all of these things that, that he's been teaching coming out of the old. And from that point on, his preaching is revolutionized because he's finally got, as it were, the full message. I think you could say the same thing. I didn't put this in your notes. But the Ephesians of Acts chapter 19... Remember the people that Paul found, and when he asked them, you know, how they'd been baptized, they said, well, we only know the baptism of of, uh, John the Baptist. We didn't know about anything else. They had come a long ways. They had come, as it were, to the point of looking ahead from an Old Testament vantage point toward the Messiah who was to come, but nobody had said, Jesus is the one. And that's looking back. Now, when you see those Old Testament prophecies, they make sense. They were the shadows. This is the substance. The New Testament, as I see it, is the substance. Now, let's move on to known, what I call known Jewish problems. If this book is written to Jewish believers, then it would seem to me that we could be instructed uh, by what problems we see arising from uh, Jewish circles that has plagued the church. And and I just want to mention a couple. I didn't throw in there, and I probably should have, first of all, Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas had been out uh, preaching the gospel, and when they came back, the question was, how are we going to deal with, with Gentile converts? And there were some who were Judaizers who said, if they're going to be saved, they have to be circumcised and they have to be brought under the law of Moses. In other words, the only way to become a Christian is to be a Jewish proselyte. Now that's a most serious problem and the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 squared off on that and said no, they don't have to be brought under the law. In fact, they cannot be. But when you look at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you don't recognize that as a Jewish problem to start with. Paul talks about there are these different people. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. Later, it becomes uh, clear that it's not those people who are, the, who are the problem people. It is other unnamed people who are leading a following after themselves. But in chapter 1, it's clear that they're moving away from the simple gospel of Christ crucified. And that's, that's a very serious problem. 
Then when you see the immorality and the things that, that crop up, you see the fruit of their teaching. It's not until 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that Paul says, these are messengers of Satan, they are false apostles, and then he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. So we see that those false teachers, at least some of them, had some Jewish uh, origins that are being superimposed upon these Corinthian saints, uh, which could have been for their destruction. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul is warning about those who come along and who don't see all wisdom capsulized in Christ. And therefore, you, you need to focus on Christ and him alone and not be sidetracked off into other things and, and, and philosophies of men and so on. And then he talks about these kind of Old Testament things that they've gotten into. Let me just turn your attention there for a second in Colossians chapter 2. He says in verse 16, Let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are mere shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That's the thing I'm trying to say. The Old Testament is true. It's inspired. It's authoritative. But it's a shadow. In comparison to the New Testament, it's a shadow that points ahead. And in my mind, these people that, that, that he is dealing with in Hebrews are, are somehow lingering in the shadows rather than coming out into the light. And I'll, I'll explain some reasons for that in, in just a second. 1 Timothy chapter 1, he talks about false teachers. They want to be viewed as teachers of the law, but, but they're actually getting off into myths and all of these kinds of speculations. And you see that in the pastoral epistles. Again, it has a Jewish base uh, to the error. Galatians is, of course, clear. Paul is saying in chapter 1, you have moved to another gospel. Somehow it isn't all about Jesus anymore. It's about doing works. You may be saved by faith, but you're sanctified by being under the law and keeping the law. That's what the Judaizers were saying, and that's what Paul says, let them be accursed. It's always about Jesus. You don't move on from Christ. You move into Christ, it seems to me, is the New Testament teaching. So this sets us out with a kind of backdrop that there is a problem lingering within Judaism that can easily perplex and trouble the church. So here's my conclusion. It seems to me that what you have is a group of people who have come out of Judaism and, and they saw themselves as, as, as exclusive. The, the people of God, the Gentiles, as pagans, as heathen, and, and so on, who were destined for hell, who they weren't really eager to embrace. They did not understand the truths of Ephesians that somehow God has in Christ reconciled Jews and Gentiles, brought them together as one new man and as one building that's being built up, as Peter talks about. And so somehow they choose to retain their distinctiveness. They really don't want to be a part of the church. They'd rather meet separately from the church and, and keep a distinct identity. And it seems to me that's problematic um, here in, in, in this day. Uh, that the author is writing and in our day as well. What would be the advantage of that? One is it doesn't require any drastic change. Now, this is a bad example, and, and I, 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 I say it right at the beginning so you'll, you'll know it's not the ideal example, but let's just take somebody 
because we've had some experience with this, at least uh, by email. Let's take somebody who's been uh, brought up in Islam. And they hear the truths about Jesus, the simple truths about Jesus, and they come to trust in him. There comes a point at which they are going to have to come to terms with the discrepancies between Christ and their religious system and the culture that has accompanied that. Would you not agree with me? There has to be a breaking point at which they say, wait a minute, this means these attitudes, perhaps these rituals and practices, these have to go because they're not consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it would be easy for someone who becomes a believer in a Muslim culture to keep going to the mosque, to go through all the rituals, and in a sense to stay under the radar by, by staying in the shadows. And, and what they can say is, well, there are these things that we hold in common, whatever. But the bottom line is, somewhere you have to say, wait a minute, this is not the same. I am different. I am new. There are now new values and whatever. It, it seems to me that that has to come along. And if you don't, then you can kind of muddle along and, and, and keep your identity, your Jewishness, and, and, and therefore avoid persecution, which is, a, which is a big theme, I think, in Hebrews and certainly within the church. You can stay under the radar, avoid persecution, and you can retain this aura of superiority if you believe that somehow the old is better, then you can maintain we are the originals and, and, and uh, Gentile Christians are, are sort of the, the copies, but we're best and we're going to stay with the oldest. That to me has some risk built in it. Okay. Um, why the therefore in 6.1 instead of nevertheless? He says to them, in 5:11 through 14, I want to talk to you about Melchizedek and how Christ is like Melchizedek, but I realize these are deep waters. Uh, and, and that's true because you are dull of hearing. And here are the evidences of that dullness. Now, what do I do about that? Well, if you were reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you would assume that what he would say is, well, I guess what we do is we just stay with milk. If that's all you can handle, then that's all you're going to get. It's just milk. We're going to do that. Instead, he says, not nevertheless, I'm moving on, but therefore I'm moving on. It's because of your immaturity and your, your predisposition toward milk that I'm moving away from milk and, in, and toward meat. Why can he say that? Part of the answer is going to come in our trouble text uh, that's coming up in verses 4 through 8. I'll save that for next week. But let's just say that the author has already told us their problem is they're not listening well. He's already said that. God has spoken finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. In that sense, the New Testament scriptures have a, a, a level of authority that, that reflects backward. It's backward compatible, but it's the latest version, and that's the one that you spend your time with in terms of moving on to maturity. As you do so, you will see more Old Testament truths. I'm not denying that. But you see them through the New Testament light, if I understand it uh, correctly. So, chapter 2, he says, you need to listen even more carefully to these things that have been revealed in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, revealed through the Son, through the New Testament scriptures that have been accredited 
and affirmed by miracles and signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, uh, also, we need to understand the shadows in terms of the substance. Remember when you look at, at Ephesians chapter 3, for example, Paul says, the things about which I'm speaking, this being brought together in, in one new creation that he just got through saying in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, he says, these things were mysteries in the Old Testament. He's not saying there was nothing said of them. He's saying that man could not fully understand them. My goodness, the, the first coming of Christ was a mystery in the, in the Old Testament in the sense that nobody said with a checklist in the new. Oh, there it is. We were looking for this. They didn't understand it because it was a shadow that is only seen in light of the substance. Now we look back and we say, wow, look at how perfectly the New Testament fulfills the Old. It does. But they didn't see it that clearly looking forward as we do looking uh, backward. So we should understand the shadows in terms of the substance. And the substance is Christ. And that's what he wants to talk about. He wants to talk about the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. How else do you grow? In whom do you abide other than him? You can't keep them back in, in, in the elementary things without taking them to the one that they point toward. And you don't make people grow by lowering the bar, do you? You don't make people grow by continuing to give them milk. Somewhere along the line, when, it, when a baby's growing up, it, we, we had our share of them, and, and, and you know, what you do is you move to the pablum and, and you move on up until finally you get the meat. So the author is saying, it's time to move on. That's the way you'll mature. That's how you will have a better understanding of what uh, takes place. Okay, so... Let's talk about the, uh, the test of true maturity. He says in, in uh, verse 14, Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. A good bit of the problem of these uh, Hebrew believers was they knew things they didn't do. They had truth that they didn't practice. And, and he says, maturity comes by putting the truth that we have into practice. Remember, Jesus says the same thing in John 7. Those who are willing to do my will, they will know. I'll reveal myself to those who are eager to obey. But those who just want to satisfy their curiosity, that's another story. You can't keep your Christianity on an intellectual level only. You need to grow in those ways, but you need to put that into practice. And I put in your notes, Luke chapter 12 says that's the way we're going to be judged. We're not going to be judged on how much we know. We're going to be judged on what we do with how much we know. And therefore, to know more and do less is to be headed for real trouble. These people, if they're going to be mature, they need to put the truth into practice, which raises the question, how mature am I? <laughs> well, I got to tell you, you have to come to these texts and say, not as mature as you'd like to think. Not as mature as you'd like to think. I'm not putting all the truth that I believe I know into practice. And that puts me in a state of moving in the milkward direction rather than meat. 
What needs to change? Well, we've got to realize we're not mature. We've got to realize that we're dull of hearing. And I'm going to linger here for one minute. We need to have more meat in our teaching. Now, this is going to sound like I've been, like I've been waiting for, you know, for all these months just to get to this place so I could say what I wanted to say. And, and that's not really true. But if you notice where our culture is going and, and you notice how things have changed, I, I talked to a guy that, that preaches, a colleague of mine, just the other day. And, and basically, we used to have 45 and 50 and 55-minute messages and nobody blinked. I've been in places in India where they think they're being shortchanged with a 45 or 50-minute message. And they think you ought to have more. And, and we've gotten to the point now where it's like 20 minutes. I mean, you know, everywhere you go, it, the messages are getting shorter and shorter, and there's more and more pizzazz. And, and I'm, not, I'm not against anything that helps people listen or gain the truth of God's Word. But what I'm saying is we're wimps. We are wimps. We want sound bite Christianity uh, and just little tiny chunks that's all pre-digested for us. Don't tell me go home and figure out what the application is. You give me three points in a poem and, and that's all I want. Uh, and, and we're going to go our way. It, it, there needs to be a greater level of, of uh, hunger for in-depth teaching. And that doesn't always come in mamby-pamby pablum form. I, I was looking at Kent's uh, uh, commentary, and, and he, he pointed out something that was interesting. In the, in the awakening, there was a period of time where stenography became a very popular subject. Get this. Stenography. And the reason was that people found they couldn't write notes fast enough when they listened to preaching so they actually, some of them would go around with quills and, and, and ink things like, like, like we do with our phone stuff, you know, hanging off our belt. They'd have those things there. And every time they heard preaching, they, they would actually practice stenography so they got it all down. Man, are we sissies or what? In terms of what it is we expect and, and want. Seems like there needs to be something there. All right. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> so let me let me quickly uh, I, and now I'm going to have to get shorter but let me make some applications <laughs> application for Jewish believers which I think is just as relevant uh, now as it was then there is a messianic movement I am delighted uh, in, in seeing Jews come to faith in Christ but I am troubled by some things that happen then and now one is the danger of trying to impose Judaism on Gentiles as though it were the better way. Now, that Paul speaks very clearly to. But it's as though there is this assumption that if you do it this way, it's best the old way as opposed to the new way. And I've even heard uh, reports about some instances where there is a downplaying of the need for the Lord's table. And even when that Lord's table is done, it is done as a rerun of the Passover. And, and the interesting thing is that most of the things that we're told about that do not come out of Scripture. They come out of tradition. And, and it's as though, if you did it our way, the old way, you would be doing it the best way. I'm not, I'm not buying that. I'm sorry, but I'm not buying that. And there is a way in which Gentile believers are being sucked into that as though that's the better way. And the danger, I think, is, is, is apparent or should be to us.
Failure to see the new covenant as better than the old. Seeing grace as better than law and works. You have to see the new as better. And that, my friends, is the message of the book of Hebrews. And why do you suppose that is? Because you've got a lot of people who are hooked on the old. And they're not so sure the new is quite that good. And what happens? When you're hooked on the old and you think the old is better, that's where you're going to retreat. And I, I put in there, back to Egypt. Isn't that what the Egyptians thought? They said, it was better for us in Egypt. We had the leeks and the garlics and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and when here they have a little place where they don't have water or they have this problem or that. What do they want to do? Kill Moses and go back to Egypt. That's because they thought Egypt was better. If you think the Old Covenant is better than the New, if you think the Old Testament is better than the New in the sense that ought to be our rule of life, if you think that people have to live by the Old Testament in the sense that they imposed uh, the, uh, on some in, in Galatians, man, you're going to head back there and you're going to think that's the place to go. That's, in my opinion, dangerous. Can I say something about Matthew's Gospel? I, I just thought about this. Jesus noticed a couple of things. One, the Jews didn't kill John the Baptist. You notice that? The Jews did not kill John the Baptist. Herod did. The Jews, I know, with the help of the Gentiles, killed Jesus. Why did Jesus get in hot water when John the Baptist didn't? Well, they, they wanted Jesus to be John the Baptist. Remember, John did no miracles, but his message was such that they somehow thought that there would be a continuation. And even John the Baptist is wondering with Jesus, wait a minute, have I missed something here? Are you really the one? We're not really on the same page, it looks like. Well, look at what Jesus does in Matthew, a supposedly Jewish gospel, genealogies, chapter 1. He has Gentiles in the genealogy. He has the Magi. Uh, in, in chapter 2, who come, Gentiles who come, or at least they appear to be Gentiles who come to worship the newborn. Matthew 5 through 7, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He says, here is the contemporary Jewish interpretation of the Old Testament. I'm telling you, it's wrong. That's the way you get to a cross, folks, is start telling them their system is wrong. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew chapter 8, the centurion, the one who says, don't bother to come to my house. You don't need to do that. All you need to do is speak a word because the greater the authority, the greater distance can be between you and whatever it is you control. You can just say the word. And Jesus says, many people are going to come from afar and enter the kingdom and many Jews aren't going to be there. Those are not popular words to Jews who thought that the kingdom was rather exclusive with respect to Gentiles. Matthew 11, John the Baptist. Jesus says, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet in all of the Old Testament, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Is that not saying something about what's better and what's, shall we say, not better? Good, but not better. Matthew 23, Jesus takes on the whole religious system and he says, you're just hypocrites. Your system and your leaders are in a bunch of trouble. And then Matthew chapter 28, in a Jewish gospel, what does the Lord Jesus command his Jewish disciples to do? Take the message into all the world, preach the gospel, in effect, to Gentiles as well as to Jews. 
And that's what gets Jesus crucified, is, is, is taking on that system and saying, it is not the way you see it. It is not the way even his disciples expected it to be. They had to wrestle with that. But I'm saying to you, when you linger in the shadows, you don't have to take those stands. When you come to maturity in the New Testament, you have to say, there are lines I cannot cross. You discern between good and evil, and you say, this is not so good. This is evil, and I'm not going to do it. And you draw lines, and that's where the persecution comes. So that is is why I see them lingering in the shadows of Judaism, afraid to come out into maturity because of, of what it might bring. Well, I said application for Gentile believers. Look at the book of Ephesians. It doesn't go back to the Old Testament and say, uh, although it could, and track salvation. It goes back to eternity past and says, your salvation started way back yonder, a long time before Abraham. It started way back yonder in the elective purpose of God. But when you get to chapter 4, after you've talked about all the, the theological implications He then talks about how the church ought to have unity and how the church ought to minister to itself down through verse 16. And in verse 17, he says, in effect, now that you are saved, you have come into a whole different way of living. You are to be renewed. I'm picking up on Paul's language in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You are are to have your, your minds renewed by God's word. You were to think a different way. You were to act a different way. So in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Let him who stole steal no more. It talks about kindness and purity in our speech and how our love ought to manifest itself in chapter 5 and how we ought not to even speak of the things that are done in darkness. That's when you step out. When you realize as a Gentile, my culture is not Christian. My culture is not Christian. Now, I would go so far as to say I don't think it ever was. But there is a way in which we tend to go back as Christians and we want to look at our founding fathers and think they were Billy Graham. Folks, they may have been good men and, and some of them may have believed in God and some of them may have been believers. But, but let's not gild the lily. And we can't turn the clock back. And, and I, I'm saying this in, in light of the elections because there's, there's a lot of confusion of culture and Christianity and you're going to hear baloney from both sides. Everybody is courting evangelical believers as the block that will make the difference. And they're telling us stuff, and you better discern truth from error. You better discern good from bad, because you're going to hear it both sides. We need to be careful that we don't fall prey to to this, uh, well, let's just call it. Let's beware of patriotism, folks. Let's beware of patriotism. That was one of the things that got Old Testament Israelites into trouble. It's not a bad thing. But be aware of what it is, and we owe our allegiance to our king. We're people who are strangers and pilgrims in this earth. Let's not get too attached to here and now. Let's think about what the future holds for us. Well, that's the way I understand this text, and now we're bracing ourselves up all week for the difficult text that follows. Father, thank you for your, uh, your word Thank you for the way in which you graciously point out to us those areas of deficiency in our lives. And I have to say for myself, there are many ways and many times in which I am sluggish when it comes to hearing what you have to say. Father, help me to submit to your word in obedience, not just in theory. Help me to discern good from evil. Help me to be wise in a day when there are so many cries coming to us 
about truth from so many circles. Help us to discern. Help us uh, to, to learn. Help us to be desirous to do the difficult and the, and the hard labor of studying your word. Help us not to just ask for what's simple and quick and easy, uh, but let us be real students of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.